Good morning, everyone, and Happy New Year. Have everybody got their uh, New Year's resolutions in order? Got those promises made? Some of you have, some of you haven't. Actually, statistically, we learned that only about half of the people actually make a New Year's resolution. And, and of those who do make a resolution, less than 40% actually keep the resolution. <laughs> and actually, the odds get worse with time. They say if you're over 50, the, your success rate drops to something less than 20%. So, if you think about it, it's just not worth it, is it? <laughs> but... On all sincerity, based on what we talked about uh, this morning during communion, I think it is good to every once in a while, whether it's the new year or in during the year, to just take some time to stop and reflect and to consider your life and what God's doing and where He might be calling you. I think it's good to stop long enough to just examine your life a little bit. And sometimes it helps to invite others into that process. I think that's actually very helpful. You've heard me share about this group of men that I spend time with every year and have for almost 20 years now. We go through a very similar process of what we talked about this morning during communion, where we remember, we look back over the last year of things that have happened in our life, good, bad, and ugly. We reflect on those things and what we want to do differently or what we want to preserve and protect. We share those with each other. And then we anticipate something different moving forward. We look forward to what God will continue to do in our life. And as a part of that, we make some commitments. And, and a lot of times those are shared commitments that we have together. Because the reality is a lot of times those commitments that we make have a much higher success rate when, when they're shared with other people, when they're made in the, the context of community. And so here's what I want to encourage us to do this morning. I want us to make a New Year's commitment. Notice I didn't say resolution because those don't work, right? I want us to make a New Year's commitment. And I want it to be a shared commitment, a a common goal that we have together to grow in godliness. To to live each day in this new year being conformed into the image of Christ. And I want us to share that commitment together, have a a common goal that we're going to strive towards that as a church family. Because Scripture actually calls us to that commitment. We're not making this up on our own. We're simply doing what the Bible calls us to do. You'll remember in our study of 1 John, he says, if you say that you abide in Him, you ought to walk in a manner that is consistent with how He walked. Walk in the same way that that He walked. In other words, if you are a Christian, your goal really every day should be to become more like Christ. So this morning, we're going to look a little bit deeper into the life of Christ. We've stayed in the Gospel of Luke. We're going to continue that this morning. We've looked at that uh, birth of Christ that we celebrated uh, during this season. We looked at uh, what some uh, events that happened during his infancy with Simeon. And then this morning, we're going to fast forward about 12 years and look at uh, Christ as he grows as a as a boy, and we're going to take some of the principles of what Luke speaks about as he describes this aspect of, of Christ growing, and we're going to apply them to our own life. We're going to see how they should impact us as we commit ourselves to that goal of growing in godliness. So before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, uh, it is our desire to uh, stop long enough to examine our life before you. 
so that you can guide and direct us in a way that uh, honors you, that we might live our life in a way that, that glorifies your name, that each day we would be conformed more deeply into the image of who you are and what you've called us to be and ultimately created us for. I pray that this morning as we look at your word together that you will use this to help us in that journey. May your word guide our goal of being more and more godly, to grow in godliness. That's our prayer this morning. And we pray this in your name. Amen. If you would turn to Luke chapter 2. We've covered a lot of ground in chapter 2. There's a lot here. We're going to begin reading in chapter 2, verse 41. So if you'll turn to Luke chapter 2, verse 41, and uh, read along with me. It says in verse 41, And his parents used to go to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he became twelve, they went up there according to the custom of the feast. And they were returning after spending the full number of days. The boy, Jesus, stayed behind in Jerusalem. And his parents were unaware of it, but supposed him to be in the caravan. And went a day's journey, and they began looking for him among their relatives and acquaintances, and when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem to look for him. And it came about after that three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the middle of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when they saw him, they were astonished that being his parents. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. And he said to them, Why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? They did not understand the statement which he had made to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and continued in subjection to them and His mother treasured all these things in her heart. Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature, in favor with God and men. Jesus is 12 years old at this point in our text. And uh, that's one year away from being considered in the Jewish custom an adult who's responsible for carrying out the regulations of the law on their own. We know that today as bar mitzvah, right? That's what they're celebrating when that child becomes an adult responsible to carry out the law of God for themselves. But for now, his parents are modeling what they intend for their kids to do when that day comes. And it tells us that it's the Passover feast, probably the the holiest day in all of of the Jewish uh, traditions. It's what's called a pilgrimage feast, which simply meant that wherever you lived, when that feast time came up, you traveled from that place to the city of Jerusalem. And by this time, we know that Joseph and Mary and that family lived in Nazareth. So it would have been about a four-day journey from Nazareth on foot to Jerusalem. The feast itself was about a seven-day feast. It was a week long. And then so another four days after that, back to Nazareth. So as you can imagine, a pretty big commitment, right? To take that much time. But they said that it's, the text tells us that they did it every single year. On this particular year, it's the end of that seven-day feast. 
And so everybody kind of gathers together. Somebody sent the word out for the group from Nazareth. It's time to go. And typically, the way this worked is that the, the women would kind of lead the way and set a reasonable pace. The men would fall back in the, the back and make sure that nobody slipped through the cracks and everybody stayed together. As you can imagine, the kids were all in the middle running around, probably covering twice as much different, uh, distance right, in the, between the, the parents as they made their way back home. As I picture that scene, I don't imagine that... I can imagine that it's not too much different than probably what a lot of us experience during the holidays when we get together with family and there's a whole bunch of people around. The parents haven't seen each other in a long time, so they're visiting with one another and enjoying getting caught up. The kids are all together with their cousins and their nephews and their brothers and their sisters and they're all having a big old time. Parents aren't worried about the kids because they know they're, they know they're with relatives and family and everybody's having fun. I think there was a similar scene that day as they headed back to Nazareth until the end of the day. After they've traveled a a full day's journey, it's nighttime now, and so everybody gathers together in those family units. The problem is that when Mary and Joseph are gathering people together, they realize Jesus is not there. He's missing. So by this time it's night. They can't travel back. They've got to sleep that night. They then wake up the next day, travel another full day's journey, back to Jerusalem, it's night again, everybody's gone to bed, so they sleep another night, now it's the third day. And it's on this third day that they begin their search in Jerusalem, probably, likely, going to the temple to begin with, and that's where they find Jesus. The text tells us that he was sitting among the teachers there in the temple, both listening to them and asking them questions. I want you to think about that because when I read that this last week as I was preparing for this morning, it caused me to stop. I don't think I've really recognized that before. This is Jesus sitting among the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. As I thought about that, it'd be kind of like me sitting down with a NASCAR driver as he listens to me describe my commute to work every day. Mr. Andretti, this is a really difficult thing. You see, we we have this circle around our city. It's called the loop, right? And we have to merge into three lanes of traffic, if you can believe that. And they're going at least 60 miles an hour some days. I mean, it's it's scary stuff, Mr. Andretti, as he's listening (laughs) and maybe asking questions. How much space do you have in between cars? How, How big is that loop exactly, right? This is Jesus sitting around with, the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And since they're teachers, you know they're talking about Scripture (laughs) with Jesus, the guy who wrote the book. You see what I'm saying here? Listening and asking them questions. So as I've thought about that, here's how I've resolved that scene in my mind. There's a truth in Scripture that we have to understand, even as Jesus is 12 years old. He's fully God and fully man. And so I believe His humanity required Him to grow in understanding. His divinity ensured that that understanding was always right. I believe that's what was happening on that day because there were probably several things going on that Jesus might have been learning. Maybe one of those things is that he was learning about the people that he would be ministering to. 
we don't know what part of Scripture they were discussing, but I have a guess. I bet they were talking about the Messiah, don't you think? I bet they were talking about the Messiah, the expectations that they had about him when he would come someday. And so Jesus was listening to those expectations, asking questions about what they were anticipating. He was growing in the understanding of what people expected him to be as that Messiah. And I think probably the questions he asked had a purpose in mind. For example, they probably talked about how Jesus would come as a ruling king, right? And so he listened. And then he asked questions about the scripture that talked about him as the suffering servant. What did they think about that? Maybe they talked about the scripture that talked about how, how God would send a deliverer. So Jesus listened. But maybe he asked a question about the passages in scripture that talk about God being that deliverer. He listened and asked questions, I think, in an effort to understand their hearts. And then maybe the questions were intended to help guide their hearts to a clearer understanding of what he had come to do. Because I believe at even 12 years of age, he has some understanding of that purpose and mission for his life. And very likely this dialogue that he was having helped him grow in the clarity of that understanding. Based on his response to Mary and Joseph, he seems to have some idea of what that purpose is. Because they asked Jesus, why aren't you with family? Why aren't you going back home with us like you're supposed to? And he heard what they said and said, but I am with family. God is my father. And this temple is the house of God, so I am at home. Even at 12 years old, Jesus knew that he was here for a purpose and he was growing in the clarity of understanding of what that mission would ultimately be. His humanity required him to grow in the understanding. His divinity ensured that that understanding was always right. But in the end, as a 12-year-old boy, he still stood in submission to his parents because that was what was right in the eyes of God and therefore, it's what we see demonstrated in the life of Christ. And then in verse 52, Luke describes for us that process of Jesus growing and understanding. And it says that, that Jesus kept increasing in wisdom, in stature, in favor with God and men. I think this particular verse is important and where I want us to spend the remainder of our time because I believe it's the basis by which we fulfill that commitment that we said that we would make together this morning to grow in godliness. Like in the very same way, we too must grow in wisdom and in stature, in favor with God and men. And so I want us to unpack those a little bit and let's begin with wisdom. I believe the wisdom that is spoken of here focuses on the intellect, the, the knowledge and understanding, the growth of our mind as we increase in that knowledge and understanding. And as we see with Jesus, I think it's important to understand that the principle begins of growing in wisdom by listening and asking questions. As Doug Larson said, wisdom is a reward for a lifetime of listening when you would have preferred to be talking. 
That's where wisdom begins. But it's important to clarify what exactly you're listening to. Because if you look at Scripture, it very clearly describes two kinds of wisdom. Right? The first kind is a worldly wisdom. The second kind is a spiritual wisdom. Worldly wisdom involves knowing how to work the system. That's the way I would describe it. I don't know if all these details are correct and what intentions were on this, but here's an example that I thought of this week as I considered this idea of worldly wisdom, kind of working the system. Uh, You know, Nick Saban is one of the most uh, successful college football coaches in America. Alabama had a rough year this year perhaps, but, but successful nonetheless. And uh, in recent weeks, as you also are aware, the University of Texas had a job opening. And apparently Nick Saban, as you would expect, was one of the candidates for this job. And and rumor has it he expressed some sort of an interest, maybe even went as far as to, to look for some real estate in the Austin area. But all the while, he's working the system. Because ultimately what happens is he gets a contract extension and a raise at Alabama where he's been all along. I don't know if that was intent, but man, there's some serious worldly wisdom going on there because he worked that system to his benefit in a masterful way. And that's ultimately what worldly wisdom is all about. It's learning how to use people and situations to maximize your own personal benefit. In order to grow in the wisdom of the world, you need to listen carefully to the opinions of man. And there's no shortage of that. I mean, talk show radio is so, so popular. You can pick up all kinds of books, right? Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Search for excellence from good to great. And I'm not saying that those things are bad in and of themselves. In fact, I've read many of those books myself. But the principles of those books are based upon the opinions of man. Very often, they are instructions of what it takes to be successful in the world. It's worldly wisdom. And spiritual wisdom is altogether different. In fact, did you know that there's only one book that you have to read for spiritual wisdom? Only one. This one right here. If you want to grow in godliness, this is the book you want to read. You want to devour it. You want to go to it frequently. Spiritual wisdom is not about how to work the system. It's how God's system works in you. This is about being transformed by the renewing of your mind, learning what is good and right and true from God's perspective. Spiritual wisdom is what gives you the discernment to determine and recognize what is true and what is false. But here's the catch when it comes to spiritual wisdom. You cannot grow in spiritual wisdom based on your own efforts. Because spiritual wisdom is ultimately not gained, it is given to you. The reason I know that is because Proverbs 2.6 says this, The Lord gives wisdom. It's pretty clear, isn't it? But it gets even clearer. It says, And from His mouth come knowledge and understanding. So if you want to grow in godliness, then you must gain wisdom as a gift from God. 
And that comes from your willingness to spend time with Him. To listen to His Word. To ask questions about how those truths apply to your life. This is what you do when you desire to live a life growing in godliness. And then right alongside of growing in wisdom is this idea of growing in stature. Now, most uh, obvious is this idea of growing physically, right? Growing in stature. But I believe what's accompanied with this is the understanding that, that there's physical growth alongside a physical discipline. In fact, turn, if you will, to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We'll see what this looks like from a biblical perspective. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Paul, writing to the Corinthians, speaks to this idea of disciplined growth. Listen to what he says in verse 26 of chapter 9. He says, Therefore I run in such a way as not without aim, I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I buffet my body and, and make it my slave, lest possibly after I have preached to others I might should be disqualified. What he's saying here is that growing in godliness requires physical discipline. Discipline is what gives purpose and direction to your growth. How many of you know what a wisteria plant is? Right? Some of you probably have them at your house. Wisteria plants are amazing. They have these long tendril vines. And, and if you don't do anything to them, they look like a bush on a bad hair day. Right? It's just they're everywhere. They're going in a multitude of directions. But if you take those vines and you train them, that bush can actually form a beautiful gate around, or vines around an arbor or a gate. It can really decorate a fence if you train them along that fence. There can be a very useful plant if you train them. I think the same is true for physical growth. You see, growing in godliness it requires discipline as we train our normal desires to be used in a God-honoring way. In that passage that we looked at, Paul says that he makes his body his slave. The idea there is that there is no physical desire that he has that is allowed to go its own way. To just have its own way. It's trained. It's disciplined. Because if we don't control our appetites, our appetites control us. If we don't make our body our slave, then we become a slave to our body. And those desires that are a part of our normal growth. It must be trained, disciplined. And here's why that's important. Paul goes on to say, actually earlier in that same letter, that our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And, and therefore, our bodies should be used in a way that honor God. Very literally, your body is the house of God's presence within you. And so how you treat your body says something about the value and honor that you give to God. Let me kind of bring this home to you a little bit. During the holidays, many of you probably had family come over, right? Spend time with you. And 
expecting their arrival, you probably did some things to get ready. Picked up the house, made sure things were in order, cleaned the bathrooms, put some of those frou-frou candles around so it smelled nice. You, you probably did those things. And probably the, oftentimes when we do those things, the, the magnitude of the effort that we make says something about the importance of the guests that we are expecting. Because what we want them to do when they walk into our house is to, to hear those things communicate a message. That message of, we're glad you're here. We're glad you're here. I think in the same way, physical discipline is what keeps our house, this temple of the Holy Spirit, in order. The things that we do are what communicate the message to God that says, I'm glad you're here. It's the desire to honor God in the way that we live. Growing in wisdom. Growing in stature. And then he goes on to say, growing with, in favor with God. Now, I stumbled on this one a little bit. I had to kind of step back and think, okay, wait a second. How do I get my head around this idea of Jesus growing in favor with God? <laughs> what exactly does that mean? And let me tell you where I've landed I believe Luke is referring to the the idea that growing in favor with God involves learning how to trust in the Lord. In fact, the writer of Hebrews says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. So growing in favor means learning how to trust. And I believe in His humanity, we can see this being lived out in the life of Christ. The Scripture tells us that He was tempted in all things, yet without sin. So just like us, every single day, Jesus, too, faced a multitude of decisions where he had to to decide whether to trust in God or to go his own way. To, To do what God says and believe that's best or to fulfill a selfish desire because that's what I think is best for me. Jesus faced those very same temptations that we face. But unlike us, every single time, Jesus chose to trust God. Even down to the Garden of Gethsemane. And I want you to think about this scene a little bit. Here Jesus is moments before he would be nailed to a cross. And he, by this time, knows that. He understands with great clarity what will be happening to him. And you'll remember that In that moment of real agony, he kneels before his heavenly Father. Do you remember what he says? He says, if there's any way, take this cup from me. But not your will. But not my will. Your will be done. That that ultimately was Jesus' way of saying, Father, I trust you. I trust you. So, your will be done. I believe at its core, that's what God is calling us to when he talks about growing in favor with God, learning to say, I trust you. And I think that includes even in those moments that we don't understand. And there's plenty of those in a lifetime. And that's why that passage in Proverbs is so important. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. But in all your ways, acknowledge Him. And He will make your paths straight. 
The reason that's important is because there are plenty of moments in my life where I come to an impasse that I cannot understand. And if I'm going to depend on me, I'm stuck and I can't move. But if I come to that place and lean not on my own understanding, but I trust in the Lord and His ways in situations that I may not completely understand, then I'm way better off. I think we get this idea as parents, this growing in favor with God when we think about our kids. We think about the absolute pleasure as they grow up to become responsible young men and women and we see them make decisions that we know and even have told them would be best for them. But they're not making that decision at this point because we told them to. They're making it because they want to. Because they believe it's true. I think it delights our Heavenly Father when we spend time with Him and we understand what is good and right and true and we begin to make decisions, not just because He told us to, but because we want to. Why? Because we trust Him. Growing in favor with God as He is so pleased to see us choose His best for us. The next thing He talks about, it kind of pairs it, is growing with favor with God in favor with God and men, those seem to be linked with each other, and I think that's intentional. Because to, to grow in favor with men, in the absence of favor with God, is a life of compromise, unseparated. It's true in private, it's true in public. Like all other aspects of growing in godliness, there must be an underlying purpose in mind. If the goal is to simply look good in the eyes of men, then you don't necessarily need God to accomplish that goal. Truth be known, you can rely on the wisdom of the world and have pretty good success. There's plenty of examples around that. But in order to do that, you've got to accomplish that through the means of using people and situations for your own personal gain. It's a selfish success. Success nonetheless, but selfish but growing in favor with God that leads to favor with men, now that's something different. Now we're in a position to accomplish purposes that are more important than us. This is not for personal gain. This is for the glory of God. We get an idea of that. You don't have to turn there, but let me read to you Titus chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, if you want to write that down. But it says this, In all things, likewise, let me... Start back in verse 6. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible in all things. Show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity of doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, in order that the opponent may be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Integrity is a life that gives integrity to our message. It's what we do not for selfish gain, but for the sake of the gospel. You'll remember, Paul actually says in his letter to the Philippians, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Growing in godliness means that we want to be men and women of integrity. Living lives worthy of the one that we are called to serve. The scripture tells us that we are ambassadors. That literally is a representative. So that when they see you, they see attributes of the one whom you say you serve. They see God in you. Your character, your values, 
your commitments, investment of your time. Growing in favor with God and man is a decision to live an undivided life so that you're not one person in one place and someone different somewhere else. But you're the same. It's a life of integrity. So let me encourage you this week to take some time to reflect on what we've talked about this morning. To consider that commitment that we made together, that common goal to grow in godliness. And when you do, let me ask you to just unpack those four things a little bit. Look at wisdom and stature, growing in favor with God and men. Consider them individually and reflect on them in your life. Ask yourself some questions. Let me give you some examples of what you might ask. Are you growing in spiritual wisdom by spending time in the only place where you can find that? God's Word. I know we have a lot of readers in here who love books. I'm one of those. And I have to ask myself as I consider that question, is this the most important book that I read? Is this the number one place that I go to guide my life? Or do I depend too much on the opinions of man more than I do the words of God? We may need to ask ourselves that, that question. Another question, are you growing in self-discipline? Is your body your slave? Or are there certain desires that have had a tendency to go their own way? And so you need to bring those back to be trained and disciplined to live under the rule of Christ so that he might use them in a way that brings him glory and honor. And then, are you committed to a life of integrity? Learning to trust God as you conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel. Does your life bring credibility to your message? Or is it separated so that you believe and, and represent one thing in one context and something different? In another. Integrity is being the same in both. Look at these areas of your life. As we, together, shared goal, commit ourselves to growing in the life of godliness. Personally, as we consider those truths in our life, and then corporately, who we are as a body. I think that should be a great description of what we do as a church family. Growing in wisdom. By spending time together in God's Word, growing in stature, that self-discipline that comes from the accountability of who we are as brothers and sisters in Christ. Growing in favor with God by learning to trust Him and encouraging each other in that. I need you. You need me. In those moments where we don't understand to say, God is good. You can trust Him. Even when you don't understand, He's got His best for you. Trust Him and in favor with men only as it is paired with that trusting in the Lord so that we are conducting ourselves as we go out from this building in a way that gives credibility to the message of the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. That's what we're called to do, this side of heaven. So let's be that people together. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that so clearly gives us direction. And especially as we begin a new year, and I know that uh, rightfully so, we spend a lot of time during this time of year in particular just being reflective, looking back on the last year and anticipating things this new year. I pray that as we do that, that we're real intentional 
about looking and considering what that means according to your word as you've described the life of Christ who grew in wisdom and stature in favor with God and men. And may we consider together what that means for us individually and how that might be lived out as a church family corporately. We are grateful that you don't leave us to ourselves, that all that we need is provided as a gift from you. We actually have, as your word says, everything we need for life and for godliness. So as long as we are connected to you, that goal has a 100% success rate. So may we be faithful to that. We pray this in your name. Amen.